Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. Christmas is nearly with us, but COVID-19 cases are rising fast. The Prime Minister's plans to give the country five-day festive lockdown release have been questioned by doctors, scientists and opposition MPs. It is sticking to it, even as London goes into a tier three lockdown. We'll discuss his impossible choice. Perhaps his Christmas gift to the nation will be a Brexit deal? Or maybe the all-time New Year's Day hangover will be a no-deal fallout at the start of 2021. Either way, we'll activate an emergency IFG podcast as soon as we get news of Brexit outcome. But this week, we're going to focus on how the UK might defend the economic freedoms promised by Brexit to build a stronger economy through an interventionist industrial strategy. Joining me in the virtual studio to talk through it all is the author of a new IFG paper on how to build a successful industrial strategy. That's our senior fellow and former number 10 advisor, Giles Wilkes. Hi, Giles. Good morning, Bowman. Also with us is Kath Haddon, who leads all my work on the Constitution and Ministers. Hi, Kath. How are you? Uh, I am uh, getting a lot better, thank you, Bronwyn. Uh, don't recommend falling off your bike and hurting your shoulder. I'm delighted to be joined as well by our guest, Ed Conway, who's economics editor at Sky News and the Times columnist. Hi, Ed. Hi, Bronwyn. Thanks for having me on. Not at all. I'm a huge fan of your columns. Thanks for joining us. Right, well, let's start with this coronavirus Christmas and the government's latest anguish over what restrictions to bring in. London's moved into tier three, the tightest. The new strain of COVID-19 may form some part of the rising case numbers in the southeast. And yet the Prime Minister is sticking to his plans for releasing the public for five days of festive on lockdown. With three households allowed a mix for a limited period, though not in Wales, where it's only two. But he is urging people to have a little Christmas. Ed, this has been a tough one for the Prime Minister to decide, hasn't it? Mm, I think it has, I, I, you know, because I, they, they don't want to be the people who, who are saying let's cancel Christmas. And I think there's also a kind of a dose, a heavy dose of realism there in that they know that whatever they, whatever rules they imposed, would people pay that much attention to them? I, I think they are a bit sceptical about that. And so I can understand why they find it slightly invidious. And it is invidious. I mean, you know, it just so happens that this Christmas is falling at a time when cases are rising, certainly in London, but, you know, in, in, in other parts of the country as well. And I don't know, put it all together. And, and it could well be that we see a, a genuine spike post-Christmas and then we have to have some you know further forms of lockdown in January. I would just say, though, that um, it's worth bearing in mind that, that one of the big places where transmission has been happening is schools. So, you know, on the flip side, while that, you know, we are going to see households mixing and it is in household mixing that we see quite a lot of transmission as far as we know. Um, we won't see children at schools and that's where perhaps even more transmission is happening. And so I suppose there's a question as to whether the two uh, even each other out. I don't know. I mean, it's... it's that's, a, that's a really good point because people haven't mentioned that school point. I think you're absolutely right to bring it in. But the yeah. Prime Minister's dilemma, he doesn't want to be, you know, he's warned that there will be a spike uh, afterwards and so have his advisors and uh, doesn't want to be blamed for that as well and the, the deaths that might follow. No, I, I think that's... And I, and I mean, look, we've, how many times have we had these episodes where where people have thought there was a simple explanation as to as to why cases were going up or down. You know, when you look at what's happened in cases to, to you know, in London during lockdown, the actual you know, lockdown, it didn't seem to have like that obvious an impact. And I, you know, a lot of people, I think, rightly focus on lockdown as being the major lever that, that we can pull, you know, to try to, to try to deal with the disease, you know, and I should say, I'm not an epidemiologist, but I kind of spend a lot of time looking at the data and seeing whether there's obvious cause and effect. But, 
you know, while I think in Wales, it looked very obvious that cases turned over the period of, of their lockdown, it wasn't altogether obvious that, that lockdown, you know, was the turning point for, for, for cases starting to peak and then come down in, in various parts of the UK where, you know, in some cases, cases were falling actually before lockdown uh, was imposed. But all of that being said, I mean, like, you know, it's going to take a while for the vaccine to, to be to be rolled out. I mean, you know, it's relatively slow at the moment. It's fast by, you know, by, by the scheme of normal vaccination programmes, but it's it's relatively slow in terms of what we were hoping for. So God, I think it's going to be a really uncomfortable uh, first six months of the year because, and I, I know less about the politics than, than, than I'm sure many of you, but, you know, alongside that, you've got, I think, a lot of MPs who are incredibly reluctant to have anything further imposed on their constituencies so that is going to be very difficult and then coming alongside you know whatever happens with brexit and so on it's it's you know we're going to need our christmas uh, you know to, to kind of uh have a little break from whatever craziness and difficulties coming in the new year so you've, you've you're coming down just about on the side of some kind of christmas relaxation what what me well i don't i don't i don't I, I, I'm a journalist. I just I just make kind of remarks from the sidelines rather than you know actually trying to devise policy. That's much too difficult for people. But I leave that to people like Giles, who who actually you know take crucial decisions. I don't know. I mean, like it, it, I, like it. You've got it, it's the art of it's the art of the kind of uh, the practical, isn't it? And I think you know the extent to which you're going to start imposing policies that absolutely no one is going to actually follow. I mean, you know, that that's that's more real politic than than, you know, kind of whether something is scientifically advisable, I would have said. I mean, but yeah, I, I would not like to have be having to make that decision because I can see that in the grand scheme of things, clearly you wouldn't want many people mixing at the moment because it does seem like a, a heightened period. But, God, you know, it's been a long year. It's been a very long year. Kath, where do you think public support for restrictions is? And, and where is the, the question of a, a public trust in this? Well, I mean, it's a very interesting question. And it goes to actually some of what Ed was talking about, because, it, you know, this isn't really just about what the actual epidemiological effect will be of this. It's also about the perception. And if cases do end up rising in January, you know, there is going to be a lot of people that will feel it was the government's handling of, of Christmas and the break and so forth that is responsible for that, even if it actually turns out to be a wide range of factors. The polling at the moment, I think there was one a uh, couple of days ago, which suggested about 56 seven percent um, of people polled uh, actually wanted tighter restrictions over Christmas. So it does seem that the government have quite a lot of support if they wanted for uh, tighter restrictions. But that could work in their favour. I mean, they, um, you know, part of the problem around this isn't just about that big overarching question of, of whether or not to have this relaxation. It's also about how you manage it. And the government have only just managed to get out a strong line saying, yes, you can have mixing with three other uh, three households, but you don't have to and that you should keep uh, any kind of engagement as short 
um, and as limited as possible. And it could well be that that stronger message combined with the increased fear about the sort of rising cases mean that a lot of people do restrict what they do over Christmas, uh, don't necessarily push it to the limits. And it's worth remembering as well that the tiers are still in place. So, you know, pubs and so forth won't be open in tier three cases. The difficulty they've got is how they've managed things like schools, because yes, schools are going to be shut for the, the next couple of weeks. But obviously, a lot of kids going back to see grandparents and, you know, many have argued that perhaps schools should have been shut this week to allow for a period of isolation for those going back, similar to what they were trying to do with students. But again, we don't know whether that will work with students. So it's it's about how they've managed that stuff in the margins as much as the sort of the big question at the heart of it all. Giles, you've been crunching the numbers, even if you don't, you're not taking the decisions in the way that Ed suggested. What does January look like to you? And as we come into the new year, we've got all these different factors playing and indeed the beginning of vaccine. Wow. Um, by the way, um, I, I, I appreciate the hospital pass Ed through me there, that I'm meant to be the person <laughs> who thinks up the answers. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I play with toy models and a bit like Ed. I mean, Ed's been diving more into the data. He's done some really interesting analyses you should look up on YouTube about um, that original forecast that Patrick Valance and Chris Whitty did in September, for example. But in terms of, I mean, one thing you get when you either play with the models or just look at the pattern of the data when this thing gets out and gets to a certain level, it's really, really hard to manage. Um, a two or three week lockdown will turn it around and get you on a downward slope, but it won't get the level of infection in the um, in the community down uh, to that sort of point at which you can then open up again. And the examples of places like New Zealand and so forth say that unless you get it down really, really low, so much so that every single outbreak can be um, subject to a test and trace procedure, you're going to have this continuous cyclical return of the thing. And um, so it's, I, I have got a lot of sympathy for the government. It's not easy to know what the right policy would have been at any one point. And right now, you would look, particularly if you look at the United States and what Thanksgiving has done to its infection trajectories, that we're going to have another bump up in January. It's very hard to imagine how adding a whole new type of mixing, the intergenerational inside mixing of Christmas is not going to boost it. And I do think the government has made a mistake in trying to tell the public, hey, we really want you to have a great Christmas. The mixed message is just too much for the public to take. You can't be saying them at one, one time, go inside, another time, go outside. It, it's just very, very confusing. And I think much as I'm sympathetic towards the government's dilemma, and I never had to deal with anything this difficult myself, you could easily look at the communications they've come up with and think they've got at least three or four different priorities at different points in the year. And it's not surprising that the public hasn't reacted absolutely perfectly to their instructions. Mm. I Boris Johnson's desperate to, to deliver good news, isn't he? That was the thing. And so you could see him kind of trying at the end of every press conference, you know, even in the kind of early days to say, oh, don't worry, it'll be over by, you know, the yeah. summer or by Christmas. And so I guess, yeah, he's, he was kind of a hostage to that, wasn't he? And and then on on the flip side, they've been, I think they're also very sensitive to the accusations of U-turns, aren't they? Because, you know, this yeah. would be another U-turn at the same time, even if it would be the right thing to do. So, I mean, like they, they have created their own, you know, they are kind of being hoisted on their own baton. But, oh, I mean, yeah, no, it's, it's a job. I was struck, Kath, by the way, you know, the, those, the, the surveying on, you know, how popular this would be, because like, a, it's been incredibly popular, a lot of these measures throughout. But is, is there a kind of, you know, should one be kind of slightly sceptical about whether people are just saying, yes, we should do that, and they're not actually 
doing it themselves. Yeah, and it, and also it's probably one of those things where everyone wants everyone else to be much more restricted <laughs> in what they do, but it doesn't mean that necessarily I do. So that's a very good point. I mean, actually, that's one of the most interesting things about this that I saw. I think it was yesterday. Um, a member of the Behavioural Science Subcommittee of Sage pointed out that there was a paper they produced on the twenty sixth of November talking exactly about the comms that you needed to do in order to manage this Christmas period and, you know, emphasising the need to have a a sort of a household plan for how you're going to do it so that you're all on the same page in terms of the restrictions that you're going to put in place, you know, wearing house um, face masks or, uh, you know, washing your hands a lot and so forth, make sure that everyone was agreed on that, Uh, talking about you know, they point out that actually a bubble is better than, say, the rule of six because you have fewer households transmitting. Um, but the problem is that because households, you know, families are likely to be more familiar with each other, the uh, the, the activity there is going to be very different than, say, if you're meeting or you're in a crowded space with a lot of strangers where you're much more careful. So there was a lot in that paper about how the government needed to communicate all of this. But we haven't really seen that. We haven't seen them sort of, you know, prominently trying to to lead this. There's been a, a, a guidance that they put out yesterday, again, emphasising the need to sort of try and and restrict this just because the rules say you can doesn't mean you should and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but it feels like there's been an absence in the last sort of two, three weeks or however long it's been since they first decided on this course of action in terms of making sure that communication was there to people. And the other thing we've not talked about is obviously the dispersal of people. You've got London in tier three. And I, I assume a lot of people from London, if they're going to join other households, will be leaving London. So what are the risks there in terms of travel, especially if people are traveling all on the same day? So again, along with school shutting, is there more they could have done to think about the sort of mitigations uh, to make sure that the the impact was reduced including the travel the travel the travel and so on let me ask you a, bit, you know, a question of what you think has happened to um liberal instincts in this country during this year I mean, we've got an enormous degree of surveillance uh and if people come back from abroad you know they have to say exactly where they are for um you know for 10 days and um uh, down to address and phone numbers and backup phone numbers and and a uh, lot of people being told by the NHS app to self isolate and so on. Do you think people are going to remain tolerant of this? Uh, Bronwyn, I think there's an interesting question about how people cope with that when the vaccine starts to roll out uh, and whether you know it's different. I think at the moment there's still the fear factor um, and you know th- th- possibly that affects people. There's still this this idea of uh, you know, social responsibility and so forth. But if you start to see the um, whatever Johnson's latest metaphor is, you know, the bugle sounding over the hill or, or whatever it is, the light at the end of the tunnel, does that affect it? Does all those, it I'm sure he's used all of those metaphors. Yes, yes, exactly. Does it start to become harder and harder? Um, and, you know, especially when you've got people that we know that some of these vaccines, you have to have two shots of it, or, you know, do, if they have one, do they start going out and acting normally? What's going to happen when some people are vaccinated and others are still waiting? How's that going to affect people's frustrations? There's still a long way to go with all of that. Well, we might pick up some of the liberal um, questions next year and, and also in relation to the, the big tech companies where there's um, really a lot of moves against um, what they're doing with content and so on. But with uh, Giles and Ed, with you, you on the podcast, I can't turn down the chance to ask you what you think the economy is going to look like next year. One, one possibility that we don't discuss enough is that there is a reasonably good consumer boom because household incomes have in large part been fairly well protected 
And the only reason people aren't buying is because of COVID restrictions. And if they manage to get through this period of COVID, and I didn't answer your question about vaccines, but it will take many months for the vaccines to reach, the vaccinated numbers to reach such a level that it seriously lowers the transmission risk. But once we are through that, um, there's a real possibility that people are able to spend and really boost the economy from a very low level. So we might be having a reasonably good economy. But reasonably good would mean getting back to sort of 98% of where we are. Still, in level terms, quite a poor economic situation for the government to face. Mm. I, yeah, and I, I mean, yeah, there is this kind of wall of potential cash that 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 you know has been that's been saved up, and and I guess that's part of the kind of you know the the V shape and and how, how far consumer spending kind of bounces back. I don't know. I'm kind of torn about this because on the one hand, you know, if you look at if you look at markets, slightly less actually in the UK than than in than in Europe or for to a far greater extent in the US, there's this extraordinary. Uh, optimism at the moment and you know partly it's kind of lower interest rates and all of the things that have been driving markets partly it is the optimism that we've seen in the in you know in the wake of these vaccines but partly also there's this I think you know there's this growing thesis that we are about to uh, to enjoy a kind of productivity burst of the likes that we just haven't seen for you know for maybe decades and, and that might be that might be crazy, but there's a lot of a lot of innovation seem to have happened, at, you know, over the course of the past uh, few months. You know, it's that deep mind breakthrough when it came to protein folding, quantum computing in China, nuclear fusion, uh, kind of mini reactors in, in the US. You've got kind of AI, uh, self-driving cars, new Apple silicon chips, um, food, lab-grown food, uh, lab-grown meat, rather, kind of chicken, lab-grown chicken in Singapore has been approved for for sale and then on top of that you know it's not just the the fact that there is a covid vaccination it's the fact that it's an mrna vaccination which is which is fascinating the first time that we've had mrna rna vaccines for human beings and what's interesting about them is potentially that's that's not just a new product it's a new kind of category of drugs you know almost like a, like kind of antibiotics you know a designer drugs that you could that could revolutionize cancer treatment the fact that i think a lot of this stuff is crystallizing at once and I don't know, means that a lot of people think, well, maybe we are in for this productivity leap that we've been waiting for for decades. That might be, it's probably kind of Panglossian. I mean, you know, often these things are. But by the same token, you know, it is kind of extraordinary that after this year where we've we've had the, the deepest the deepest recessions that we've ever seen, actually it's ending with a lot of people thinking, well, we're not just we're not just seeing a bounce back in terms of that consumer spending that Giles was talking about, but maybe some breakthroughs that we hadn't expected at all. Some of which are to do with COVID and you know mRNA perhaps kind of being sped up and and also working from home and different kind of uh, changes possibly to to the way of work, but also just other things which have been germinating for a while and have suddenly flourished. But like I say, markets like to get. Kath, just to return as we finish the coronavirus section, just to return to one aspect of the politics that we know is going to be huge next year, and that, that's the relationship with Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. Where do you think we are um, at the end of the year on that? Uh, I mean, it's all on tenterhooks, isn't it? They've, um, they, you know, they've tried to manage the, the Christmas um, period as well as possible, putting out this joint statement. But as you said, you know, Wales has diverted and has gone for... Um, two members. I mean, I think the key is going to be obviously 
Mark Drakeford, the first minister, was falling over himself to say, look, we, we basically agree, we agree on 95%, we just yeah. think it's appropriate. Sorry, go on. Yeah, no, I was going to say, I mean, you know, the key factor in all of that, it really is uh, now Brexit and, you know, what happens in the next few days over the deal, um, all of this stuff about the internal market bill, you know, the, the government has um, uh, rode back on some aspects of it, but there's still a lot of very sensitive issues, in t- including, you know, the very concept of uh, devolution and the degree of power that uh, those governments have. Um, we've certainly seen Johnson paying more attention. And I think, um, you know, we're gearing up to the Conservative Party trying to um, find some kind of better narrative about its case for the union. But we've still not really seen, you know, any flesh on those bones. So uh, it's going to be a very interesting year for, for devolution. I know my colleagues will be um, all over it. <laughs> Let's go on to our second question, which is about industrial strategy. Both Brexit and the government's long-delayed industrial strategy are about the government seizing the tools of state control. We've got a new paper out saying that uh, the government has failed to explain how it's going to deploy the economic freedoms it says that Brexit will bring to build a stronger economy. And Giles is the author of How to Design a Successful Industrial Strategy out this week. In it, he sets out the rules and recommendations to make industrial strategy and success, and even more, how to to avoid doing more harm than good, which he says is a a big risk. Charles, let's just start with a one-line description. What is an industrial strategy? I guess an industrial strategy is when the government decides it wants to change the structure of the economy in some way and deploys a bunch of tools, you know, R&D, infrastructure spending, skills, towards those specific ends. So it doesn't just, in general, try to improve the skill base or the infrastructure of the economy, but it says, for example, I want to have a bigger tech sector or I want to boost exports, and then sits down and tries to do it with conscious design at its heart. And um, why is it in fashion again? Well, I mean, it's come and gone. I mean, it was really in fashion 40 years ago. The Thatcherites decided it was terrible as a way of sort of promoting producer interest, wage inflation, union domination, and pretty much picking bad companies to to dominate the economy. It came back, I guess, after the financial crisis, when people realised that just allowing the capital markets to decide what happens in the economy isn't good enough, and that there are also opportunities if the state gets behind certain big, obvious sectors where there is a need for state involvement. I mean, the ones that we picked when I was working for Vince Cable uh, eight, nine years ago were aerospace, offshore wind, the automotive sector. If you get behind them, you can produce high-value sectors, growing jobs, and um, and sort of shape the economy in a way that you might like to look of. Kath, can you give us a bit of history, a bit of perspective there? Some governments really like the phrase industrial strategy and others really aren't very keen. Uh, why is that? Yeah, I mean, Charles touches on a lot of this in his paper. And I mean, much of it goes back to, you know, the days when we had nationalised industries. And, you know, we were talking about industrial strategy in terms of heavy industry. And, you know, with the decline of that, uh, with the Thatcher government and the privatisation of many of those industries, um, you then had this 
desire from government to sort of stay out of it, to not try and control. It was very much part of the Thatcher agenda to, uh, particularly Nigel Lawson, as, as Giles talks about, to not try and control it in the same way. But since then, you've had all sorts of different arguments because, I mean, the truth is that actually there's always a lot of politics in this. Uh, whether you look at the decline of, of national industry, you know, the loss of the mines or whatever, a lot of things like the levelling up agenda um, are really about industrial strategy. They're about how to support various parts of the country that have been through huge economic change. Similarly, you know, after the foot and mouth crisis, the rural economy was hit very hard about that. That instigated a really big pushback. You had things like the Countryside Alliance, you know, could have a big impact on politics. And Still today, we talk about the need for better rural broadband. And so a lot of these things are sort of inherently very uh, political when we talk about parts of the country. The big issue when it comes to sort of politics and and where you see this sort of constant churn in industrial strategy um, in government policy is about the idea of picking winners, uh, whether that's particular sectors that the government wants to back, whether it you know comes down to cases where individual companies are you know struggling or whatever, and that's where it starts to become very political. And Giles has done a great effort of trying to, as he say, it's not about the sort of the why or even the where it's about the how of, of managing those really difficult trade-offs and trying to make sure that it is actually done on the basis of, of what's right rather than just um those sort of more difficult political questions yeah. and that's where i that's where i do get most frustrated because the the politicians often act like the job is done when they just point at a thing and say i want to do that better i want to mm pick a northern town and say that should be boosted so we're going to go there and do something or pick a desirable technology and say well we should be winners at that and but the how i was talking to a management consultant yesterday say it's so frustrating you see the government decide that it wants to do a thing but it doesn't ask the question well if this is such a great idea why is the market not doing it already if it's such a great idea why did previous governments not pick it they don't try to learn yeah, absolutely. Ed, I wanted to ask you, I mean, how seriously you think we should take the government's professions of, of having an industrial strategy or wanting one, um, or whether it just turns into an excuse for spraying around cash to the places or the uh, that it wants to help, perhaps electorally, uh, or the, and the industries that things are very uh, bogish, like digital, and, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's money without constraint. I tell you, I mean, like it. They, I suppose we should take them seriously, and that they're actually using the the phrase for the first time in ages, and saying, you know, they're using it in 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 a in a way that's that's you know approving of it, and saying we want to do it rather than uh, you know demeaning it by by just saying it's all about picking winners. Um, but as for the stuff that has, you know, as for the actual stuff that has been implemented, I I, I don't know that it's necessarily shifted the needle that much i need to be careful here because you know giles to some extent is one of the brains who was who's thinking about this stuff in downing street uh and i'd say i don't want to be scathing of, of 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 the the output but it doesn't look it doesn't feel at the moment like we have a kind of working active industrial strategy in this country i don't know if that's unfair giles am i being unfair no, no that, that's not unfair in that if you're looking at the things that I know concern you when you write every week, like the productivity of the country or, or the deep fiscal hole we're in or the new model we need post-Brexit, the sorts of things we've started doing are quite small. I mean, even if you have an absolute blowout success at aerospace and offshore wind and so forth, it's going to be one or two percent of the economy. And I think a kind of realism about the possible scale of your impact, both in time and in quantity, 
is is really important because if you go out there and you pretend that just because you've got a big capital budget and a lot of, and a big majority, you can turn around problems like the regional inequality of this country in a matter of a parliamentary term or two, you're just going to foster a lot of disappointment. It really does require staying power. And the things we started back in 2012-13, you might only just now be seeing the, um, the impact of them. Can, Charles, can I ask a question? I, I mean, you know, touched on the fact that you used to do this in government. But again, one of the things that you talked about in your paper is the who in government ends up being responsible for this. Because, you know, it's one of these areas that obviously the Treasury always want to have a really strong grip when you're talking about the overarching macroeconomy um, questions. But then you've got obviously the business department uh, also have a, a say in it. Uh, you know, MHCLG as the local government departments have a view when it comes to sort of regions and so forth. Is it always end up being a bun fight over who gets control of the purse strings of doling out money? Or is there some way that they can do better cross-government working on this? It's a really good question, because let's be honest about it. The business department is not normally politically powerful. And it will want policy outcomes from the other departments, even if it's not about the purse strings. And one of the points I want to make is it's not all about like throwing loads of money at the economy. But it might be about having a conversation with MHCLG about the planning policy in an area. It might be a, You might want a conversation with the Treasury about a tax break for a particular venture. And so you need someone who's able to call the departments together, do that really difficult job of coordination, which the IFG constantly covers. And if you don't have a powerful person that can make people turn up to the meetings at every level of the civil service, it will fail. So uh, the, the really blunt answer is you need a powerful politician who makes it their top priority in the business department if that kind of coordination is going to work. Otherwise, it will be quite niche. And I mean, that's you can still achieve great things within niches. But if you need to do really big things, you need to get other departments coming with you. So you need to pick a really powerful um, minister like we had in Lord Mandelson. Michael Heseltine, Vince had it to a certain degree too. If you don't have that, or if it's like their third agenda, you're not going to get the work across Whitehall Unit. And presumably there also needs to be like, it needs to feature quite quite heavily and, and ideally quite coherently in, in, in manifestos. Because I mean, you know, this this is, we, we've, we've had elections that have been about about Brexit and, you know, but it's difficult to kind of, it's still difficult to disentangle from various manifestos precisely what kind of Brexit we're talking about. But it strikes me that, and and you talk about this in your, in your paper, you know, Brexit is this kind of moment that makes an industrial strategy all the more important, partly, I guess, because it's an economic kind of challenge. It's a moment, but partly, I guess, to some extent, because a lot of the levers of industrial policy have to some extent now been been taken back, you know, this whole thing about take back control. Well, we do have more control potentially now over over what we're doing with farming policy and with trade policy. And frankly, you know, if we're going to work out what our industrial strategy is, we, we need to know the extent to which we are going to be subsidising farming. We need to know kind of like quite fundamental questions like how much food do we really want to generate in, the, in this country and what, and what degree of protection are we going to give to either farming or indeed other kind of nascent industries and and so it is it does feel like a moment where we start to need to start to have this conversation what i'm not convinced about yet is whether we've actually properly begun that conversation whether we know what the country or indeed actually the political parties want to do in in a way that perhaps was a bit clearer back in the 70s or or the 80s where the conservative party were heading in a kind of 
you know, somewhat more coherent economic direction, you know, agree with it or not. Yes. And Labour Party were going another direction. I just, I wonder if we're going to head in that direction, but we just need some time for the politics yeah. to change And, and you, you're, you're right, it's a key moment. I mean, obviously, the Brexit moment is a really key moment, but you refer to a whole bunch of tools that we haven't used for a long time. And it's important to remember that the Conservatives, in my opinion, with considerable justification, were very pleased to give up these tools. We don't want incomes policies. We don't want sectoral tariff barriers. We don't want an awful lot of the stuff that gave the industrial strategy a really bad name was because they were anti-competitive. They were protectionist. And in my view, and I make it, I say it really clearly in the paper, competitive forces are still the overwhelming driver of long-term productivity. And it's important to remember that a lot of the really beneficial changes, you mentioned some of them in your interesting talk earlier about innovation, most of these come from the market. You need to have a good environment, but you don't want the state having some bleeping HQ in cabinet office trying to plan who does digital health this way or online banking that way. You want to be making sure that the, that the market is free to try and test things. And so it, what would be worrying is people look at Brexit, they go, well, what was the point of that? And they say, well, we better play around with all of these tools again. Now, they weren't a good idea last time. And I don't see what's really changed. I mean, they're a good idea this time. So, Giles, thanks for making that point. So let's, um, let's just stay on this, this question of a digital strategy, if you like, uh, and whether there should be one. Um, we've got, on the one hand, the government trying to tax um, uh, big tech companies, uh, having seen just how dominant they are. They really uh, own the, the lockdown. If you like, everyone is dependent on them um, more than ever before. Uh, at the same time, the government wants to encourage lots of um, digital innovation, but it doesn't really know how or whether it should be the one specifying it. How would you advise the government to go about forming a digital strategy? Well, in particular, the one thing that really winds me up is when people do not acknowledge there is a trade-off. So it's true that if you look at the polling, it is incredibly popular to go after the online giants and say, let's tax them more. Now, and of course it is, you know, they seem to be distant, they seem to be foreign, they're, they're very rich shareholders, why not go after them? The reason it hasn't happened earlier, because this has been true for years, is because it's a, an anti-growth policy. You're basically penalising the activities that shift in a more productive direction, and that comes with a cost. And the government needs at least to acknowledge that cost in its, in its thinking. It might still be the right thing to do. It might still be that for lots of other purposes, we need to slow it down a bit and redirect resources towards the high street or um, because we're suffering real ser serious social effects there. But I do think it's important, number one, they acknowledge that there is a trade-off between these. You can't simply sit there as the stationary bandit in the case of the state and pick off whoever you think has done rather too well out of things without thinking about the dynamic effects and what this does for innovation. Particularly as Britain leaves the EU, structures finally we have to think very hard about what our investment offer is and if we're the people who say if you come here introduce new innovative techniques do well from it we're going to go after you harder and act like you've done something wrong it's going to come with a cost so i i think they need to have that conversation in other words they need to keep the treasury in the room when they have that chat it's not just about the pollsters and the people who've been damaged by the digital transformation and Kat, you were mentioning rural policy, um, and Giles was talking about farming a bit. Um, we had some noises from the government about trying to talk farmers more towards the, the, the environment rather than um, stock on, on the land. How big a change should we be looking at? 
I, I honestly don't know. I mean, there's been a lot of talk about rewilding, um, you know, obviously, uh, and, and also uh, quite a lot more greater hints that the, the deal for farmers is obviously going to be, you know, quite difficult. I mean, again, this is one of those sort of really long running issues that the governments have, um, that successive governments have struggled with um, in terms of how they view the, the, the not just the uh, different parts of the country, but also that difference between the sort of metropolitan areas and the more rural areas. And, uh, you know, no government has really quite found the right balance. And it, again, it goes to other wider issues about um, planning, uh, you know, this is a, one of these areas that always ends up horribly controversial. I think I can't remember if it was the last time that Giles and I were on the podcast together, but we were talking about the prime minister about to have a massive re- a revolt from his backbenchers because they are trying to change planning policies. It was another Dominic Cummings area. So um, it just shows that even if you have some kind of overarching plan that makes sense for the country as a whole, it's very hard to get away from the sort of the individual politics of place and people and so forth. So uh, I honestly, I don't know at the moment. I think it's one of those things that the government have still got to set out their sort of post-Brexit vision uh, and also, more importantly, the details of what that's going to mean for uh, individual businesses and people. And Ed, just sticking on this, this, this question of planning and indeed farming, should we look at the green and pleasant fields? And, and say, look, really, those need to be turned over to houses. We need houses more. I, I mean, from my very anecdotal experience of talking to to, to some farmers, I, I think they'd be delighted to have more more you know homes built on some of their fields because part of the the thing that a lot, a lot of the time they moan about is that it's so difficult to get some of their land kind of given over to you know to to have houses built on it. That's it comes back to a kind of planning constraints and and you know one of the ways. That they that they can kind of crystallise gains from their land if they if they own the land is to is to is to sell it off to to have homes built on it. So so actually, you know, that there, there is a tension there as Kath is you know kind of alluding to. There's a tension there that actually is within from within the kind of rural community uh, that that farmers might want might have different kind of uh, ideas to to those that let's say someone living just in the outskirts of a, of a rural town might have i what i was struck by reading the i don't know if it was a white paper or a green paper or i think it was a white paper wasn't it on agriculture the, the the one that came out recently i was struck by the extent to which it was kind of saying well we haven't really made our minds up about what the strategy is and just bear with us and it kind of adopted something akin to the european kind of subsidies rules but then said you know we're going to be kind of transitioning towards towards something else but it just i i can't remember what the, the turn of phrase was but it was something along the lines of you know this this may evolve and we're kind of we're learning as as we go i i mean on the one hand that's kind of probably very frustrating but on the other hand i kind of i i get it like giles was saying we've kind of outsourced a lot of this stuff that we particularly want to think that deeply about for to, to the eu and it was quite convenient for us but now it's incredibly difficult. Like it's, how do you get a trade deal with Australia without having kind of farming somewhere there in, in the mix? At some point you have to confront this stuff if you're gonna, if you're gonna kind of go out there and be the, you know, the buccaneering kind of free trade nation. And we just, I just don't think we've got there yet. I don't think we've had that conversation and and, and I think we should. It's clearly a fascinating and important conversation. Um, and that's And that is one of the kind of, I think the benefits of Brexit is that that hopefully we will start to have some interesting conversations about the nature of uh, of the economy because that's basically w- what this is. 
but I just think we're so in the early days and all, you know, I think level playing fields is a fascinating thing to discuss given that it, it gives you that kind of starting point for talking about all of the rest of this, you know, the nature of what kind of economy you want to have. But frankly, the debate has not been about that at all. The debate has been about the, the structures of the level playing field and how it might work. And, and that's, I know that's a proxy conversation for things like what kind of a country Britain wants to be, but we need to work out what kind of a country we want, want to be. And I think, I, I think you'd be, I think it's a bit unfair to expect the government to have all of those answers already, which I think some people do, including the Europeans, because because I don't think we as a, as, as, as a nation have decided that yet or being, being given an opportunity to decide that through elections and manifestos. So that will come. And I think it'll be really interesting for all of us to, to observe. But I, I feel like we're not even at the beginning of it yet. I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, we haven't begun to discuss those trade-offs. And as you said, just put words and put a shape to what kind of country this is going to be uh, uh, in economic terms, but beyond that. Well, we can discuss all that um, next year. But that is the end of this week's Inside Briefing. My huge thanks to Giles Wilkes, Kath Adden and Ed Conway. Great to have you with us. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to hear more of our discussions, please do check out our sister podcast, I'm Actually Live. There's some great shows for you there, including my interview with John Kingman, the chairman of UKRI and uh, former senior civil servant about civil service reform. And he gives a short speech there with some very hard hitting points about pay, uh, lack of in the civil service. And of course, you can find all our work, including Giles's brilliant new paper at instituteforgovernment.org.uk. That's it for today. As I said, we'll be back whenever it is to react to whatever happens next in Brexit. And do look out for a special year in review, what a year it's been. Uh, there's a bit, going to be a podcast landing on that in the week over the festive season. In the meantime, whatever you're up to, wherever you're going, maybe not very far, have a very happy and safe Christmas.